So there's some questions to go through to start with. But first we'll start with the visualization and the recitations. So it can be very helpful in our practice to think of how we and all sentient beings are the same. It cuts down on the self-centered thought, if we think like that. And it also cuts down on the um, tendency to get frustrated or angry or irritated at people. So one of the ways to think that we're all the same same is that we all want happiness and none of us want suffering. And you can really go into that in your meditation and think about it in terms of people you like, people you don't like, and people you don't know, and really develop it there so that you, um, you feel close to everybody and you feel how we are the same in in that respect that the most important thing in our lives is is our wish to be happy and to be free of suffering and the second thing to remember uh, showing how we're all the same is that we all have the potential to become fully awakened buddhas uh, and so this is uh, our buddha potential is a uh, part of our mind. It's, uh, it can't be removed. It's not uh, added on by anybody else. And it can't be uh, damaged uh, irreparably. And so again, when we remember that everybody has the possibility and the potential to become Buddhas, then again, uh, you know, when we're, we're witnessing people do incredibly samsaric things and creating negativity and all, um, you know, to, to remember that that isn't their uh, inherent nature and that uh, when we, you know, because we're exactly like them, when we act opposite to our Buddha potential, we are self-sabotaging and creating harm for ourselves and for others. But we, uh, despite that, there's still this Buddha potential that one day will um, be revealed and blossom and we will become awakened and so will all these other sentient beings, no matter uh, what form they appear in right now, and no matter how we, uh, our current life's opinion of them, or the state of our current life's uh, relationship with them. 
Okay, so remembering these ways in which we and sentient beings are the same really uh, relaxes the mind, makes it much more open and tolerant. So spend a minute or two and and, and reflect on that, especially, uh, you know, in relationships where you get stuck with some kind of uh, negative feeling, which could be, when I say negative feeling, it doesn't necessarily mean anger. It could also mean attachment, because uh, both of those are defilements. Okay, so reflect on this and, you know, see if you can come to a much more uh, equal and tolerant feeling So when we, we reflect that others have the Buddha potential, the Buddha nature, it really does open our minds a lot, and it helps us to understand that, uh, you know, whoever the, whatever way that person is appearing to us in this life is just the karmic bubble of, uh, you know, the karma that that ripen this lifetime, showing this kind of appearance and personality and so on. Um, but that that's not uh, the real important thing about the person. You know, what's really important is their potential that can be developed and become really uh, quite vast. Yeah, because when we think of just how people, when, when we get locked into thinking that who they really are is this karmic bubble appearance of this life, uh, you know, then we have all sorts of opinions about them. Why do they cut their, comb their hair that way? Why do they have this political opinion? Why, you know, do they do this and that? Why don't they think like this and that? And we get really stuck in like lots of, uh, you know, judgments about other people and lots of projections about them. And we believe that that's kind of who they are. And, you know, I think you, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so, but when you stop and you say, oh, but the, the basic nature of their mind is pure on both the conventional level and the ultimate level, uh, 
And, you know, when they're able to develop the wisdom that understands that, uh, you know, they're, they're not going to be appearing like this uh, catastrophe karmic bubble that they appear in this lifetime. Yeah. I mean, even the people we think are wonderful, it's a catastrophe karmic bubble, isn't it? Yeah. That's, that's not who people really are. Um, so very helpful. Are you getting what I'm saying? Yeah? To really stretch the mind here. Yeah? Because when you think of it, we are so locked into the appearances of this life. You know, they're so strong what our senses perceive. And everything seems, you know, just on what, what we perceive with our senses seems so real, out there, objective. And we're not even aware of that, um, how much we mix our opinions with our perceptions. Yeah. So the perception, the eye consciousness is seeing this one person who looks a certain way. Yeah. But then we have our whole store of, you know, well, everybody who looks like this then, you know, has this kind of mind and this and this, and they're going to relate to me this and that way and blah, blah, blah. And we put it right on top of what we're seeing so that even when we look at the person, yeah, to our ignorant mind, it, it seems like all those apparent, all those projections we're putting on them are coming from their side, even though so many of the projections have nothing to do with uh, objects of sight and sound and smell and taste and touch, okay? It's just, well, somebody looks at us and instantly, you know, well, they're, they're what is it, um, uh, manic depressive, yeah? We love to, to psychoanalyze people. We don't know what we're talking about, but, you know, that doesn't matter. We can still project things and, you know, give them names. Yeah. And, and it seems to us that that's what's coming just by seeing them. Whereas that's totally, it's not coming through our eye consciousness. It's, it's, we're, we're projecting, we're seeing what we're projecting. Yeah. So in those cases, it's so helpful to think that, you know, first they just want to be happy and not suffer. And second, they have the Buddha potential. So have some, uh, have a kind attitude towards them. Hmm? Okay, so there's some questions here. I won't, I'll, I'll try and answer the questions briefly because if you hold on, the, for the coming sections we'll go into these topics in a little bit more depth and make it more understandable. So, uh, is the fundamental mind of clear light a naturally occurring phenomenon and the most basic foundation of mind? Does it naturally apprehend the ultimate nature, emptiness? No. Yeah, it, it doesn't. Uh, we have to work to, un to understand emptiness, you know. Um, our, our course consciousnesses are fused by ignorance. 
even that uh, very extremely subtle mind also um, doesn't apprehend emptiness. At the time of death, some people say that uh, when at the moment of death, when the uh, fundamental innate mind of clear light manifests, some people say uh, emptiness does not appear to it. Yeah, some people say emptiness appears, but it is not apprehended. So it boils down to the same thing. In ordinary people, you know, the mind is obscured, whether it doesn't appear or or it appears, but we we can't apprehend it. Okay. Yeah. Otherwise, you know, we all would have perceived emptiness by now, gazillions of times. All those times we've died. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. Is that what is meant by primordial wisdom? No. <laughs> okay. So what's meant by primordial wisdom? I would have to see the context in which that, that expression is used. Okay. Yeah, so it's not that we've realized, we, that we're born with the realization of emptiness. Yeah, that's just kind of hidden somewhere in there. No. Okay, this fundamental innate mind of clear light is an impermanent phenomena. It apprehends the emptiness of itself, which is a permanent phenomena. Hence, we have the analogy like water poured into water. Question mark? I'm not sure what the question is. Maybe the question is, how is that water? What is the meaning of water poured into water? What it means there is that the the mind apprehending emptiness and emptiness, there's no appearance of subject and object at that moment. Yeah, there's just the appear. There's just the realize the appearance and realization of emptiness. So the mind is, if it's a direct perception, is realizing its own ultimate nature, and the mind isn't standing there and going, oh. Finally, I have samadhi on emptiness. You know, finally, here I am. Now I perceive my own ultimate nature. Uh, that's, that's dualism, okay? And appearance of subject and object. But in the realization, direct perception of emptiness, there's not that subject and object, okay? It's really, I don't know about you, but I find it hard to even imagine what it would be like to perceive things without the appearance of subject and object, because that's how we ordinarily perceive stuff, isn't it? There's always the feeling of a subject here and an object there, even if we're just thinking about something. Okay. So if the above is so, which it isn't, um, can we conclude at the time of death, when all grosser minds absorb, there is a flash, and this clear light mind momentarily arises before the gross minds of the next life begin to arise. And that moment of mind sees the ultimate nature. No. Okay, like I said, some say it uh, emptiness appears, some say it doesn't even appear.
But if it appears, it's not apprehended. But in an ordinary being, it's not noticed and not understood, even if it were noticed. Okay, it would seem that in sutra practice, when we cultivate the wisdom realizing emptiness and come to an inferential realization and then a direct uh, realization, we are simply purifying the coarse conventional minds to a profound degree, yes, but not to the point of completely eliminating cognitive obscurations and merging, so to speak, with the fundamental naturally occurring wisdom mind of clear light. Is that right? I'm not sure I understood the question. Okay. In any case, when, you know, through sutra practice, uh, you know, you develop jine uh, and laktong, serenity and insight on emptiness, that level of mind is definitely more subtler than our sense consciousnesses, which are the gross level, really gross levels of mind. But that's not the fundamental innate mind of clear light, okay? So that level of realization helps purify that level of mind, but this is why it's so important eventually even 10th level bodhisattvas on the sutra path, even they have to eventually enter vajrayana because you have to make manifest that extremely subtle mind and then use it to realize emptiness. Because you have to purify all the levels of mind yeah, to be free of the cognitive obscurations. And freedom from cognitive obscurations where they're not going to come up, that that only happens at Buddhahood. You know, when you're, uh, if you have single-pointed concentration and a direct perceiver on emptiness, at that moment, the cognitive obscurations are not active. They haven't been eliminated, but... Uh, but no, but they're, they're still active because you can't see the two truths at the same time. Yeah. Okay. So that's why only tantric practice, the only way to access the most subtle mind, is the only way to completely eradicate the appearance of true existence. Uh, yes. Okay. So we can eliminate the grasping at true existence through sutra-level practice, yeah. But uh, the appearance of true existence to eliminate the cognitive obscurations, it has to be uh, with that extremely subtle mind. This is according to Vajrayana. Sutrayana doesn't say that. They, they say, our Sutrayana path is good enough, yeah. It'll do the trick. Okay, so now we're on page 325, right? The section that nothing is to be removed. So a verse found in the ornament of clear realizations and the sublime continuum, which were both authored by uh, Maitreya. The ornament is a commentary on the perfection of wisdom sutras uh, from the second turning, and the sublime continuum 
is a commentary on the Tathagatagarbha Sutra from third turning. Okay, so speaking of Buddha nature, uh, there's a verse in, in Sublime Continuum that says, nothing whatsoever is to be removed, not the slightest thing is to be added. Perfectly view the perfect truth. Seeing this, the perfect will liberate completely. Okay, nothing whatsoever is to be removed. Not the slightest thing is to be added. Okay, perfectly view the perfect truth. Seeing the perfect will liberate completely. So if the meaning of this verse were the same in both the ornament and the sublime continuum, there would be unnecessary repetition. And God forbid there's ever that, even though there, it's there a lot. <laughs> okay. <laughs> to avoid that complication, uh, the verse should be interpreted differently in each text. According to Abhayakara Gupta, one of the uh, great Indian commentators on the ornament, from the viewpoint of the perfection of wisdom sutras, the verse refers to the Tathagatagarbha from the perspective of the object, the empty nature of the mind. And remember last time we were saying that in the second turning of the Dharma wheel, that's how... Uh, you know, the Buddha nature was presented. Yeah, the clear light refers to the object emptiness, the ultimate nature of the mind. In this context, the element within sentient beings from which nothing needs to be removed and nothing needs to be added, something the discovery of which will lead us to nirvana, is the emptiness of the mind. Okay, so that's how Buddha nature is presented, uh, the predominant present presentation of Buddha nature in the second turning and in the sutra uh, perspective. There is nothing to remove from the mind's emptiness because inherent existence has never existed. Okay, emptiness is the lack of inherent existence. It isn't like there was inherent existence, and then you meditate on emptiness, and you take away the inherent existence, and now it doesn't exist anymore. If inherent existence existed, it could not be removed, and there would be no reason to practice the path, because we couldn't get rid of it. Yeah, it would be inherent. Yeah. Um, okay, but... Inherent existence has never existed. So it's interesting to think about, you know, what are we trying to realize in our practice? Yeah, that the, that the, uh, you know, the boogeyman doesn't exist. We're trying to realize that what we think exists doesn't exist. Yeah. You would think that we would be trying, I mean, most of the theistic religions, you're trying to realize something positive, aren't you? You know, you're trying to perceive God or God's grace or I, I don't know, 
what they do. Uh, some of you have studied it. You know, please help. But you, you know, you're trying to 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 understand something, some positive quality that God has. In you know, in Buddhism, we're trying to to see that what doesn't exist doesn't exist. And our whole problem is we believe that something that doesn't exist does exist. Yeah. And it's amazing when you think about that. It's, you know, that's my whole problem. Yeah. Some, I believe that something that doesn't exist exists. You know, I should be able to see that it doesn't exist and then just stop thinking like that and stop grasping at it. But, you know... Our mind is so used to thinking things are inherently existent that even the, you know, when things, uh, external objects appear to us, we appear, we perceive them as inherently existent. Yeah, that's how used, used to it we are. It's like, you know, it's like every time you look at somebody, you see, I don't know who, you know, that we just project that on, and that's who that is, and you know, and we believe it. Okay, so there's nothing to remove from the mind's emptiness because inherent existence has never existed. There is nothing to add to it because it is the ultimate nature of the mind. So when you really dig and you want to know what is the ultimate nature of the mind, when you search for, you know, a truly existent mind that you think exists, what do you find instead? Yeah, the ultimate nature, the emptiness of true existence. So there's nothing to add on to that because that's just the ultimate nature. It is perfect in the sense that there's nothing to remove and there's nothing to add. And seeing it perfectly, in other words, seeing it directly without any conceptual overlay, so having a direct perceiver and not a, uh, an inferential one, okay, so having that direct perceiver will cleanse the mind of obscurations and bring awakening. It doesn't do that all at once, it does it slowly, gradually, but that's, that's what happens. Okay. So the object emptiness is flawless and perfect. And the way of perceiving it is also flawless and perfect because we're seeing it directly with no conceptual appearance, no appearance of true existence. Uh, no appearance of subject and object. You know, all these elaborations, none of them are there. It's just the mind directly perceiving its own nature. That must be incredible, huh? When one actually perceives emptiness in this way, with an uninterrupted path, so remember, an uninterrupted path is a mind that perceives emptiness directly and has the power to eliminate a certain level or a certain degree of afflictions. 
Yeah. So uh, according to the sutra path, you know, as you go through the five paths, well, actually, the starting with with the path of seeing and going up on the bodhisattva vehicle, when as you go through the the ten uh, uh, grounds, yeah, each level you're removing different a different degree of afflictions. So the uninterrupted path is that mind that directly perceives emptiness that has the power to eliminate that specific level of affliction. Okay? So it's not that you realize emptiness once and then that realization can eliminate all the afflictions at once. It's like washing a really dirty cloth. You have to, you know, take one level of dirt out at a time. Okay, so um, so that's the uninterrupted path that's in the process of eliminating a certain level of afflictions. As soon as those that level has been eliminated, then seamlessly that uninterrupted path, that consciousness that's the uninterrupted path, becomes the liberated path, the consciousness that is now free from that particular level of, of afflictions. Okay, so the, these two, uninterrupted path and liberated path, they go together. So uninterrupted path is like, they say, it's like kicking a thief out of your house. So you've seen uh, through your realization of emptiness, there's the power to really eliminate a certain level of afflictions, the uninterrupted path. But you've kicked the thief out, but you haven't locked the door. So it could come back. Yeah, the liberated path is like locking the door. Now the thief can't come back. So once that level of afflictions has been eliminated from the mind, then the, though that level cannot appear again. They're kaput forever. Is the object you started with in that meditation the affliction? At a certain level. No, no, you're meditating on emptiness. You don't meditate on the affliction. Then why does it, what, how does it know what affliction to get rid of? Because it's the mind that it just has a power. It's like, how, how does, does dawn dish dis detergent know what level of grease to get rid of? <laughs> It just, you know, it washes whatever whatever grease it can wash, and the rest is left there for, you know, Ajax. <laughs> uh -huh. So I've been confused by this analogy, and I think it's because when I hear it, it sounds like both the uninterrupted path and the liberated path are actively doing things. But that's not the case. It's, it's not necessarily that the liberated path is locking the door as much as the door is now locked. Is, is that correct? No, it's, it's locking the door. That perception of emptiness mm -hmm. is uh, demolishing that level of afflictions. Okay, so the liberated path is still actively eliminating... No, the uninterrupted path mm -hmm. is what actually is yeah. doing the elimination. And the liberated path is... It's been, it's been 
removed in such a way that it can no longer come again. Okay, so you you wash your your dish, uh-huh. yeah, and the 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 dawn or whatever detergent you, you you know it gets lit. It's actively working to get rid of that level of garbage. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's the uninterrupted path. Then that level of garbage is finished. Yeah, it's down the drain. It's never going to come again then that mind is still uh, meditating on emptiness, but it's now called a liberated mind. So the uninterrupted mind, the liberated mind, are both meditating on emptiness. Mm-hmm. Okay? But so in the dishwashing analogy, yeah. so the uninterrupted path is is washing the dish i'm totally with you on that yeah that make that yeah. i think i understand and, and then that's gone and, and then the death dish is just sitting there yeah nothing has to be done yeah so, so this is but but the mind is still mm-hmm. you know the dawn can still be there on top of the dish it's the mind is still realizing emptiness at that point yeah and it know that mind knows, you know, not manifestly, but you know, it it knows that that level has been eliminated. Uh, uh, what, what are you wanting that mind to do? I, I think it's it's uh, it doesn't make a difference for the cleanliness of the plate once it's clean. Yeah. If the dawn sits on the plate for say a minute versus another 10 hours. So so that's where it's like I'm trying to understand if that during that liberated path, the mind is a- actively doing something to impact the afflictions because I thought it was like, well, that's but, what the uninterrupted path does. Okay, the uninterrupted path is doing that. But remember, actively eliminating the affliction isn't like the uninterrupted path is going, okay, I have, you know, the the middle of the middle level of attachment, and I'm going for that one right now. And perceive the emptiness. You're demolished, finished. Okay, that mind is not thinking like that. Right. It's just realizing emptiness, mm-hmm. and a byproduct of that realization of emptiness is that these afflictions can no longer s- stand up. So it takes, you know, some time for that level to be destroyed. and But this mind's realizing emptiness, and then it just continues realizing emptiness. But because now that level of afflictions is gone, you call it a liberated mind. And it gets subtler and subtler if you go on the elimination. Yeah, you're eliminating subtler and subtler levels of afflictions. And they each have a liberated path. Yeah. When you get up after your meditation session, then you're in the mind is what's called um, yeah subsequent attainment, and so then you're going and you're you're doing the actual dishes. (laughs) And then when you sit back down. Your liberated path is now irrelevant, 
I mean, you are liberated, so it doesn't need to be called a liberated path. Or like, what happens after that? Your your mind just changed. What happens? You're meditating on precious human life. You have some feeling for it. You get up and you go wash the dishes. There's a continuum of the mind. And the fact that you, you know, meditated on precious human life and it brought something up for you, that's a good experience. It planted, you know, in that analogy, planted some seeds and you get up and do something else. Yeah. I mean, yogis aren't, aren't, they, they aren't in single pointed meditation all day and all night. Yeah. Yeah. They got to do the actual dishes sometime. <laughs> Yeah, let, this will be the last question, and we'll keep going because otherwise, yes. If you are on an, on a, an unliberated path. Can you, an uninterrupted path. Thank you, an uninterrupted path. Do you necessarily always proceed to the liberated path in that one session or, or not necessarily? It's usually in one, yeah, that one session. Okay. Yeah. Like, oh, I'm destroying all the afflictions. You know, I'm, I'm, I got the thief out of the house, but I really feel like having a cup of tea now. I'll come back and lock the door later. You're right there. <laughs> yeah. Okay. When one actually perceives emptiness in this way, Okay, well, let me read the first, first sentence. The object emptiness is flawless and perfect, and the way of perceiving it is also flawless and perfect, because it's a direct perceiver. When one actually perceives emptiness in this way, with an uninterrupted path, in the very next moment, one will attain a liberated path. So you don't take a break between the two. Okay, it just naturally, it's just a realization of emptiness that just continues. Okay, and I don't think you don't have the thought, oh, now that this one's the uninterrupted path. Oh, here comes the liberated path, because only emptiness is appearing to your mind. That stuff, understanding that, that happens when you arise from the meditation. Yeah. Okay, Nagarjuna echoes this. Reference, uh, referring to the Buddha, Nagarjuna says, there is nothing that you have brought forth. There is nothing that you have negated. You have comprehended that sentence as it was before, so it is afterwards. Okay, so that's like, you have Buddha, you haven't brought anything forth, you, nothing you negated. Well, you know, what have you been doing, Buddha? <laughs> you know, should, you, you should have brought forth something, and you should have negated something. Yeah. No. Okay. The wisdom realizing emptiness does not remove something from the emptiness of the mind that was previously present. Okay. It's removing something from the mind, but not from the emptiness of the mind, because the emptiness is always emptiness, even when it's the emptiness of an afflictive mind. 
Okay, it's still emptiness. We may call it the emptiness afflictive because the mind that it's the emptiness of is is afflictive, but that emptiness, you know, seen just as emptiness is is not afflictive. It's yeah, what it is. Uh so not nor does it bring a new reality uh to the mind. So that realization you know, emptiness doesn't bring a new reality to to the mind. It's not like I'm meditating on emptiness. No, I see, you know, God and you know, that that's that's not it. I <laughs> it reminds me of I was reading an article many years ago about you know, because there's a lot of people people who are not Buddhist, who are interested in Zen meditation. And so there was a story about this one rabbi who went to a Zen retreat, you know. And of course, if you're doing Zen meditation from a Buddhist perspective, you're going to realize emptiness. Well, this rabbi, you know, did, was, I don't know exactly what he was meditating on, but it supposedly was Zen. And he realized that God existed, and and all this devotion for God came up. Yeah. So I think, you know, what first of all, it's going to depend on actually the meditation technique he was using and what he was doing, which I can't comment on. But um, also, it it depends on the uh, the person's. Uh, intellectual understanding of what's or what the world is all about yeah so if you believe in god then you're going to perceive god yeah yeah i mean cuz you have the experience of all these saints and, and so forth um you know so they perceive something i have no idea what but, you know, when you have that conceptual framework, then whatever you perceive, you're going to call that thing. And it's going to, you're going to uh, have that conceptual idea of what that thing is. Yeah. Okay. So when you're meditating on emptiness, make sure you realize emptiness. Don't, you know, don't realize God. Don't realize. You know, the nature of, of the flower, um, you know, stick with the nature of the mind. Okay. So, nor does that wisdom bring a new reality to the mind. As the descent into Lanka Sutra says, whether the Tathagata appears in the world or not, reality forever abides. So emptiness, reality is there. It isn't like when the Buddha appears in the world, now all of a sudden there's emptiness. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, you know, okay. It's emptiness is the nature of things. So Buddha nature, uh, understood as the emptiness of the mind, is always present and does not change. The only difference is that wisdom now realizes this ultimate nature of the mind. Okay? So you're realizing a non-affirming negation. That what you were sure 
was there how you thought things really existed. It doesn't exist that way. So it's just, yeah, taking taking that away. According to the sublime continuum, the verse refers to the clear light mind being the Buddha nature. So according to the ornament, second, second turning, it referred to emptiness. According to the uh, Gyulama, sublime continuum, it refers to the clear light mind being the Buddha nature. Okay. The clear light mind is the basis that has many attributes, such as its being pure from the beginning and not newly created. Uh, its being pure from the beginning is described in the first line. So there is nothing that uh, you have brought forth. So emptiness is pure from the beginning. Yeah? Um, there's nothing. Uh, it's being pure from the beginning is described in the first line because afflictions are not an inherent part of the clear light mind. There is nothing whatsoever to remove from it. Okay. It's not being newly created is explained in the second line. There is nothing that you have negated. It's going back to the first quote? Oh, right, it is. Okay. So the, fir- the first line was nothing whatsoever to be removed, and the second, not the slightest thing to be added. We might add a, a, a little thing here directing people back to the quote on the, the previous page instead of just the, the citation that's directly above it. Okay. Um, so it's not newly created, is explained in the second line. It is not the case that once the clear light mind was absent and then it was freshly created. So it's not that before you, you didn't have the clear light mind and then, you know, you said abracadabra with correct pronunciation, rolling your tongue back, you know, like Jeffrey Tarrash. Uh, <laughs> And then all of a sudden, now you have, <laughs> yeah, now, now you have it, okay? Okay. So it's not the case that once the clear light mind was absent and then it was freshly created. Thus, there is nothing to add to it because the clear light mind is eternal and it's empty. But what But what does viewing this clear light mind perfectly mean? According to Sutra, how can non-conceptual experience of the clear light mind liberate us? Yeah, so what what gives that non-conceptual perceiver um, of emptiness the ability to... uh, eliminate obscurations. Yeah. How can a non-conceptual experience of the clear light mind liberate us? If you're talking, 
Yeah. Because that, that clear light mind is a conventional phenomena. It's not emptiness there in that sentence. In the sublime continuum, the sublime continuum says that the ultimate nature is to be self-revealed. There is no uh, need to use reasoning to understand it. One's own experience will reveal it. What? That's not what His Holiness says. He says you have to study and understand emptiness and really use reasoning to, to know what it is. It's not, it's an extremely, uh, it's, a, it's a hidden phenomena. It's not um, a manifest evident phenomena. You know, so what, what are they talking about? Okay, so Gyaltsab, who was Tsongkhapa's disciple, okay, maintains that this ultimate nature refers to the emptiness of the mind as it does in the ornament. Okay, so when the sublime continuum says that the ultimate nature is to be self-revealed, there's no need to use reasoning to understand it. One's own experience will reveal it. You know, Gyaltsev says... That's referring to the emptiness of the mind. If that is the case, what does saying it is self-revealed mean? Because if it were self-revealed, it should have re revealed itself by now, and we shouldn't have to put forth any effort. Yeah. How can ultimate reality reveal itself? Yeah, especially if it's permanent. Interpreting the ultimate nature mentioned here to be the clear light mind, okay, so not the emptiness, but the clear light mind, connects to the Dzogchen and Mahamudra meditations on the mind. Yeah, because those two traditions are meditating on the mind. Yeah, that's the object. By stopping memories of the past and plans for the future, the clear and cognizant nature of the mind can be directly perceived. Great. Is that the realization of emptiness? No. If one abides in this state and has a prior correct realization of emptiness, okay, then the coarse levels of mind dissolve and the subtlest innate clear-like mind, Rigpa, as it's called in Dzogchen, manifests. It reveals itself. So what is it that, that is self-revealing? It's the subtlest mind, yeah, that doesn't actively reveal itself. The subtlest mind doesn't go... Okay, now all those, you know, uh, the appearance, the white appearance and the red appearance, black, uh, near attainment, those are all gone and all the 80 conceptions are gone. So now I'm going to pop up and be manifest in somebody's mind. No, you know, that, that mind isn't thinking like that. Yeah, it's just when those things have, have uh, dissolved, then... Yeah, the innate clear light mind is what's left. Yeah, and if you have a prior understand correct realization of emptiness, 
yeah, then that, in, and you've been practicing Tantra, that met, makes all those grosser minds, conceptual minds, dissolve so that that, uh, the, you know, the, em the emptiness of that clear light mind is there. Okay. So the, uh, so combining this mind, so well, let's go back. If one abides in this state and has, okay, have you seen the clear and cognizant nature of the mind directly? If you abide in this state and have a prior correct realization of emptiness, okay, then the coarse levels of mind dissolve and the subtlest innate clear light mind, Rigpa in Dzogchen, manifests. Okay, so now we're talking tantric perspective. Okay, it reveals itself. Combining this mind with our previous familiarity with the, with emptiness liberates us from afflictions and defilement. Okay, and which the last two perfectly view the perfect truth. Seeing the perfect will liberate completely. Okay. So again, what, what the main point that's being gotten at is we have to make manifest this extremely subtle mind and then use that to realize emptiness in order to uh, remove all the uh, obscurations, the afflictive obscurations and cognitive obscurations on the tantric path. Okay. So now the capacity giving rise to the three kayas. So what is the relationship between the transforming Buddha nature and the third factor of the Tathagatagarbha as set forth by the seventh Dalai Lama, the factor that is the seed that serves as the basis for the actualization of the three Buddha bodies? So remember, okay, remember the th those three points. It's on there on page uh 323. Okay, so the first one is the factor that allows for the Buddha's awakening activity to interact with sentient beings. Okay, then the factor of the sphere of reality, namely the mind's emptiness of inherent existence. And third, the factor that is the seed that serves as the basis for the actualization of the three Buddha bodies. Okay, so we're talking about that third point there. The factor that is the seed that serves as the basis for the actualization of the three Buddha bodies. Okay, three Buddha bodies. Remember Dharmakaya, Sambhokakaya, and Ramakaya. Okay, so take the example of a rosary and the beads that form it. When we think of a rosary, we think of one thing, yeah, that is a continuum. This is similar to Buddha nature as presented by the seventh Dalai Lama. When we think of the individual beads, we focus on the particular components of the rosary. Okay, so every object, you have the object and, and every object has different attributes. 
At one time, okay, so uh, the beads are analogous to the various consciousnesses that can be the Buddha nature. Okay, so at one time it is bodhicitta, yeah, because that's part of the uh, transforming Buddha nature. At another time it is the mind realizing emptiness. At yet another time it is the mind restraining from non-virtue and so on. Okay, the seventh Dalai Lama is not referring to these specific mental states. He is explaining the continuum, the common feature shared by all of them. Okay, this common feature is the mental primary consciousness that is the Tathagatagarbha. Okay, so the mental primary consciousness not talking about mental factors or, you know, what is perceiving or anything. But that mental, that clear and cognizant mental uh, primary consciousness, that's the Tathagatagarbha. Is that the main mind? What? It's mental primary consciousness, is that the main mind? It, it's, um, well, we have sense consciousnesses. And so this is the mental consciousness. Yeah, yeah, the primary mind. It's not talking about with uh, the mental factors that are with that. Okay. So some of the instances of this continuum, uh, you know... <laughs> So the common feature is the primary mental consciousness. This is the Tathagatagarbha. Some of the instances of this continuum may grasp true existence. And from that perspective, they are not the Buddha nature. So you have the continuum of the primary mental consciousness. And, you know, when you see something you really like, and I want it. You're grasping at that object. Your chocolate is inherently existent, and so are you, and you're going to get it. Okay. That mind, yeah, you still have the primary mental consciousness, but that mind now is not the Buddha nature because it's an afflicted mind, and it does not go on to awakening. Okay. So some of the instances of this continuum may grasp true existence. And from that perspective of, of grasping true existence, they are not the Buddha nature. But from the perspective of that mind and the Buddha nature, what? From the perspective of that mind still being clear light, that which is clear and cognizant, whose obscurations are adventitious, it is the Buddha nature. Okay? So you have your mind of attachment. From the viewpoint of it having attachment, that mind is not the Buddha nature. But from the viewpoint of just isolating the clear and cognizant nature of that mind, it is the Buddha nature because that clear and cognizant nature continues to awakening. Okay, but that whole mind, because now it has grasping at true existence, so that whole mind 
you know, it's the primary mind now together with some defiled uh, mental factors, that is not the Buddha nature. Okay. So looking deeper, this third factor of the Tathagatagarbha cannot refer to the transforming Buddha nature. Why not? According to Sutra, the transforming Buddha nature is any mind that is not free from defilements, whose continuity goes on to awakening, and that serves as the basis for the emptiness that is the naturally abiding Buddha nature. The naturally abiding Buddha nature is the emptiness of the mind that is not yet freed from defilements. The seed, having the capacity to give rise to the three kayas, must be a pure state of mind that is not defiled. This can only be a very subtle mind that has existed since beginningless time and will go on endlessly. The explanation of this primordial clear light mind is found in great depth only in highest yoga tantra, not in the sutra teachings that speak of the transforming Buddha nature. Okay, so let's go back through that. Looking deeper, the third factor of Tathagatagarbha, which is, remember, the factor that is the seed that serves as the basis for the actualization of the three Buddha bodies. Okay. So that so the third that third factor cannot refer to the transforming Buddha nature. Why not? Okay. Because the transforming Buddha nature is any mind that is not free from defilements. Yeah whose continuum goes on to awakening and that serves as the basis for the emptiness that is the naturally abiding Buddha nature. So it's it's a polluted mind. Yeah. The transforming Buddha nature. Yeah. Um, yeah. The continuum is not free from defilements. Okay. Specific moments of that continuum may be but the continuum in general, you know, our transforming Buddha nature, it's not going in and out of, uh, you know, being pure and defiled. It's, you know, pretty much for most of us, you know, there, there's a few moments where maybe uh, there's not active uh, affliction, but in general, there's lots of afflictions. Okay. So the naturally abiding Buddha nature is the emptiness of the mind that is not yet freed from defilements. Okay. The transforming Buddha nature is any mind that is not freed from defilements, the continuity of which can go on to uh, Buddhahood. Okay. So like the mind of Bodhicitta. That can go on to Buddhahood. Yeah. The seed having the capacity to give rise to the three kayas must be a pure state of mind that is not defiled. 
Why? Because the three kayas are not defiled, and you can't have something defiled being the cause of something that's undefiled. So this, so that pure state of mind that's not defiled, this can only be a very subtle mind that has existed since beginningless time and will go on endlessly. Okay, so not a mind that's there and it's gone and, you know. So the explanation of this primordial clear light mind is found in great depth only in highest yoga tantra, not in the sutra. Okay. So when it says primordial, primordial usually in English means like from the beginning, but in Buddhism it means there was no beginning. So it means beginninglessly, yeah. Okay, so His Holiness here is really emphasizing the importance of highest yoga tantra and the importance of having that uh, that completely uh, undefiled mind. So this one sentence that says, according to Sutra, the transforming Buddha nature is any mind that is not freed from defilements whose continuity goes on to awakening. Yeah. The continuity includes that subtlest mind, but it's just not spoken of at the sutra level. Yeah. It's not yeah, manifest. I, but yeah, the sutra doesn't even talk about that mind. Yeah. yeah. So this they're, they're not so, even talking. So this has to this whole notion then has to come up in Tantra because they probably saw there's a problem here. There's this continuity is defiled, so how could it be that? And they have yeah. to explain, find something that isn't filed. Yeah. Something that isn't filed from isn't filed from the beginning, yeah. Okay, now moving on. A Buddha's nature dharmakaya. Okay, so to review, let's have some review. Maybe we'll understand what they're talking about. To review in tantra, the fundamental innate clear light mind of a sentient being of sentient beings, has never been mixed with defilement. Okay? So this innate, ever-present mind has two qualities. It is the subtlest mind, so it can't get any subtler, and it has existed beginninglessly. Okay? And it exists endlessly, and it will go on to awakening. When coarser levels of mind appear out of this subtlest mind, afflictions manifest. But when the coarser levels of mind, including the white appearance, red increase, and black near attainments, these are levels of mind that manifest during the death process. When these uh, dissolve or absorb and cease, only the beginningless and endless clear light mind remains. At that time, it is not possible for afflictions to arise. Why? Because all the coarser levels of mind which have afflictions have dissolved. They aren't functioning at that moment. So this indicates that the coarse minds are adventitious. They are not stable and enduring. 
Yeah, so the when we say that the um, the afflictions are adventitious, they aren't the nature of the mind. So these course levels mind are subtly similarly adventitious. They're not stable and enduring. Yeah. When the innate clear light mind is, while the innate clear light mind is eternal. So the innate clear light mind is eternal. It doesn't come and go away. It's just there. Those other coarser minds, they can be manifest, then they dissolve and they're not functioning. Then in the next life they manifest again. Okay, something like that. So this primordial clear light mind is the basis from which an individual samsara evolves, and it is also the basis from which the qualities of nirvana come about. Okay? So this mind is in- incredibly important, you know, because, you know, th- there it is. It can be the basis of defilements when the mind is defiled, and it can be the basis of nirvana when those defilements are obliterated so that they cannot uh, return. It's the same continuum. Karmic imprints that go from life to life are on this continuum of fundamental clear light. They're not virtuous or non-virtuous. They're they're imprints or potencies on this fundamental clear light. Yeah, but... You know, when we have the imprints of potencies of, you know, of actions created under the influence of ignorance, then that karma is part of what obscures this innate clear light mind. So the mind at the time of death, that is at this subtlest level, where it says that the afflictions are not manifest, the seeds of the afflictions are Will travel. Right. The seeds of the afflictions are there. Sometimes there's, uh, sometimes they say that the continuity of consciousness carries the seeds. Sometimes they say the person carries the seeds. So I can't remember at this particular moment if, you know, it, the, the person is designated in dependence upon the mind. Yeah. But there's, what is the reason why they change it? Um, Oh, yeah, because, what? Yeah, it's the mere eye. So, yeah, so there's some reason why sometimes they say it's one and sometimes the other. I can't remember what it is. Wasn't it um, meditative equipoise of emptiness? So at that point, you can't say that the mind it has the right. Afflictions yeah, at that it? at that point, yeah, that's true. So the mere yeah. eye holds on to it briefly. Yeah, the, it's the mere eye that carries the seeds because during that meditative equipoise on emptiness, there's no pollution in the mind at all. So, but. You know, they they don't pick up and transfer to the person. So the person's designated on the basis of the mind, but conceptually, they you know you need to have some explanation. What about the virtuous mental factors and the pol- and they're because they're polluted by ignorance too, right? Mm-hmm. 
So in that going forward... Yeah. The, the virtuous mental factors, their continuum can go to awakening. But of course, if they're influenced by ignorance, not all virtuous mental factors arise due to ignorance. They can, but they, they don't have. So the, the virtuous mental factors are part of the transforming Buddha nature that goes to awakening. Yeah. But if there's ignorance involved, then that, mo- that mind that has ignorance doesn't go to awakening. So, so even as long as we have the appearance of true existence, those virtuous minds are polluted. Those they, there's there's some polluted. pollution, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's why at the time of death, there isn't direct realization or emptiness because there's still, yeah, there's still some pollution there. Okay. Uh, the primordial clear light mind differs from the clear light mind described in Sutra, which is together with afflictions in that afflictions manifest in it even though those afflictions are not an inherent part of that mind. Okay, so the clear light mind described in afflictions, uh, I mean in, in sutra, that mind, you know, the afflictions can manifest in that mind, but they are not an inherent part of that mind. Okay, however, so the, the afflictions are adventitious. However, Afflictions are never able to manifest in the primordial clear light mind presented in Tantra because this mind manifests only after the coarser levels of mind and wind have ceased yeah, at the time of death or by means of special yogic techniques. When those coarser levels have ceased, the afflictions which function on the coarser levels also cease. Those afflictions are adventitious, so they're not part of the uh, the subtlest clear light mind. Okay? So those grosser minds uh, dissolve at the time of death or by special yogic practices. Um, so when there's death. Have, did Venerable Sankit Kadro talk about the stages of death when she did her course on death? Yeah, she did. Okay. So some of you may remember it. Some of them you may not. So there, there's eight kind of uh, passages, eight stages in it. Yeah. And in the first uh, four stages, your sense consciousnesses are dissolving. You know, they lose their power to function. And different elements in your body are dissolving and so on. Different winds are, are entering the central channel. Um, you know, once the, those gross uh, minds dissolve at the end of, of the fourth stage, yeah, then you have three, you have four more stages. Those three more, okay, that, that directly follow there, fifth, five, six, or seven. The white appearance, the red uh, increase, and the black near attainment. Okay, so these are appearances that come as the winds are dissolving 
into the central channel. They just naturally appear. Yeah. And the although each each of those three is associated with different conceptions, actually all and this the total of 80 conceptions for the three, all those 80 conceptions actually dissolve at the they've dissolved by the end of the fourth stage so that by the time you hit the the white uh the white appearance yeah white vivid appearance uh those gross uh afflictions and conceptions have dissolved so already the mind is a whole lot quieter okay and then it continues to get more and more subtle you know from the, you have the white appearance, then the red, then the black. And then when that is finished, uh, then those three levels of mind, yeah, which are also adventitious, they don't go to awakening, they cease. And then the only thing that remains is the fundamental innate mind of clear light. Okay, so when we die, that happens naturally. Yeah. So if you're a tundra practitioner, you know, one of the big things you want to do is make that man ma manifest and have it realize emptiness. So this is where the yogic practices come in because the, with them, you work with the channels and winds and drops to make that disillusion process happen even like it does at the time of death except you don't die. Okay, so it, it's quite a profound practice. It's, it's not one we're going to pick up tomorrow and, you know, <laughs> start to do, okay? But just knowing that, you know, that that's kind of how it works. Yeah. For, for me, you know, when I was lear first learning about this, it was like, Okay, this is how Buddha, this is how you get from our stage to Buddhahood. You know, this is that, you know, the sutra path makes a whole lot of sense, but this adds some kind of depth to it. So some more step by step so that, you know, this is how it works. In the perfection of wisdom sutras, the nature body of a Buddha is said to be an unconditioned permanent phenomena, the emptiness of inherent existence of the awakened mind. Okay? It's also the true cessations of on that mind. The wisdom dharmakaya of a Buddha is a conditioned impermanent phenomena. Okay, so just because something is conditioned as impermanent and impermanent does not mean it's quote, quote, bad. Okay, yeah. In the Theravada tradition, they see impermanence as, you know, one of the marks of samsara, yeah, because nirvana is permanent, and that's what you're aiming for. Yeah, but according to the Mahayana, you can have virtuous mental factors, virtuous phenomena that are impermanent, yeah. So they're not abandoned when you attain nirvana. Okay, the wisdom dharmakaya of a Buddha is a conditioned impermanent phenomena that is the continuation of the clear light mind described in sutra. 
okay? So in Tantra, the primordial clear light mind is called the composite nature body of a Buddha. Okay, you don't hear that term very often, composite nature body of a Buddha. Although the emptiness of the awakened mind, the nature body in common uh, to sutra and tantra, yeah, that's the emptiness of the awakened mind. That's a permanent phenomena. Okay, the existence of a composite nature body is unique to tantra because only tantra speaks of the primordial clear light mind. Okay, so that primordial clear light mind is called the composite nature body of a Buddha. So the point is, usually nature body refers to something's permanent in sutra, but here, when you say composite nature body, it's referring to the the primordial clear light mind. Calling the primordial clear light mind at Buddha nature, the composite nature body, emphasizes that nothing is newly created at Buddhahood. The mind that has been there all along, but now all the defilements which were never an an inherent part of it are completely gone. Okay, so... Now it's a composite, meaning it's impermanent. Nature body, it's completely freed from all those adventitious defilements. From the perspective of it cognizing all veiled and ultimate truths simultaneously, the pure light, primordial, clear light mind of a Buddha is called the omniscient mind, the wisdom dharmakaya. From the perspective of it, its existing from beginningless time and now becoming the purified basis of the emptiness that is the unconditioned nature body, it is called the composite nature body. Okay. So from one perspective, it's called the omniscient mind, yeah, because it cognizes all veiled and ultimate phenomena simultaneously, yeah. It is called the composite nature body, that same mind, because it's become the purified basis of the emptiness that is the unconditioned nature body. So it means, when it says it's the purified basis of the emptiness, it means that that, uh, fundamental uh, innate clear light mind is the basis of the emptiness of the Buddha's mind, and that, that emptiness of the Buddha's mind is the unconditioned nature body. So from the perspective of it being the basis of the unconditioned nature body, it is called the composite nature body. Okay? So the seventh Dalai Lama refers to it as the seed that has the capacity to give rise to the three kayas of a Buddha. 
although seed usually refers to an abstract from composite. Yeah, remember the third kind of impermanent phenomena. Here, it is a mind that serves as the basis for these three Buddha bodies. What is the mind that's the basis for the three purified Buddha bodies? This innate, primordial, ever-present mind, okay, which also transforms into the wisdom dharmakaya. Okay, thus in Tantra, the composite nature body and the wisdom dharmakaya of a Buddha are the same mind seen from different perspectives. Yeah, you don't find that in Sutra. Okay, it's the same mind. One way of looking at it, it's the wisdom dharmakaya, it's omniscient. Another way of looking at it, yeah, is it's the basis for the three buddhakayas because you have to have that kind of mind to to have the three the three buddhakayas in summary a sutra speaks of two buddha natures one is the naturally abiding buddha nature the other is the transforming buddha nature okay so far so good the naturally abiding Buddha nature is the emptiness of the mind that is not free from defilements. The transforming Buddha nature is the mind that is the basis of that emptiness, as well as any other neutral or virtuous qualities of mind that continue on to Buddhahood. Okay. If an intelligent person who is inclined towards Tantra, hears of the third factor of the Tathagatagarbha as explained by the seventh Dalai Lama. In other words, the seed having the capacity to give rise to the three kayas. Now, that person will understand that there is some aspect of her own mind that is a composite i.e. impermanent phenomena, and the Buddha nature. What is that? It cannot be the defiled coarse mind because that mind does not continue to awakening. It must be a subtle mind that is hinted at but not explained extensively in Sutra. She turns to Tantra, where there is a lengthy and explicit presentation of this mind. In this way, she enters Tantrayana. So there His Holiness is showing how somebody starts with Sutrayana and through getting to a certain point in their understanding in Sutrayana, they see that they have to now learn about that fundamental innate mind of clear light and so they have to look into Tantra at that point because only Tantra talks about that. So now I'm wondering if this, if this is giving rise to the three kayas, where does the very subtle, extremely subtle wind fit in mm. for there to be the form bodies? Yeah, it's, it's, it's one nature with that. It's just he's not talking about the wind here. He's just focusing on the mind. 
having both this composite phenomenon and the Buddha nature gives the Buddha the capacity to cognize both simultaneously conventional and ultimate truth. Is this part of the deal? Yeah. <laughs> part of the deal. Yeah. You bought a car and you got a radiator with it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So. Yeah. A couple questions online. Mm -hmm. Are emptiness and ultimate bodhicitta synonymous? Yes. Um, ulti no. Empty, uh, ultimate bodhicitta is the wisdom realizing that emptiness. Sorry. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. The polluted virtuous mental factors, do they continue to awakening but get purified along the way? Yes. Okay. Okay. Pristine wisdom abiding in the afflictions. This section's really interesting because you may have heard people say different things, you know. Okay. There is an area of potential confusion about Tathagatagarbha that we must take care to avoid. It's seen, it stems from such statements as wisdom within with afflictions Wisdom abides. Yeah, you ever heard that? People say that. With, yeah, within afflictions, my wisdom abides. Yeah, you'll hear that a lot. Not so much from the Galupa, but from the, the Nima. Yeah. So within afflictions, wisdom abides. Fa it's found in Nagarjuna's praise to the, the sphere of reality. Okay. Oh, it stems from such statements as within afflictions, wisdom arises, found in Nagarjuna's praise to the sphere of reality. Jhana usually refers to an Arya's pristine wisdom that directly realizes emptiness. Does this mean that afflictions are in fact wisdom? If so, are we already Buddhas? Yeah, are you already a Buddha? You don't act like one. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Maybe, maybe you are, and you're you're just you know a, a Nirmanakaya manifesting. So you're acting as a Buddha. But you know, speaking of myself, yeah. okay. So statements such as this need to be understood correctly. Here, jhana refers not to Arya's wisdom realizing emptiness, but to the clear light nature that can transform into the wisdom of that resultant state. So usually jhana refers to Arya's wisdom realizing emptiness, but here it's referring to the clear light mind that can transform into the wisdom of the ultimate, the resultant state of Buddhahood. Jhana is the aspect of the mind found even in afflictive mind that can become the wisdom realizing emptiness. The cause, the clear light mind of sentient beings, will eventually become the result of Buddha's pristine wisdom. And for this reason, the clear light mind of sentient beings is called wisdom, even though it has yet to become that wisdom. 
So we've encountered many times before giving the name of the result to the cause. Like when you're in the garden, uh, you know, and you say, uh, I'm planting daisies. You're, you're not, there's no daisies to be seen. You're not planting daisies. You're planting daisy seeds. Okay. But daisies are the result of the seeds. So we often call the seeds daisies as in I'm planting daisies. Okay. So how is that? Uh, so it's the same here calling the, the, uh, that clear light mind. Um, you know, I'm getting myself tangled up. Okay. Um, jhana is the aspect of mind found even in the clear light mind that can become the wisdom realizing emptiness. Yeah, didn't I say that? It found even in an afflictive mind that can become the wisdom realizing emptiness. Okay, yeah. The cause, the clear light mind of sentient beings, will eventually become the result of Buddha's pristine wisdom. And for that reason, the clear light mind of sentient beings is called wisdom, even though it has yet to become that wisdom. How is that aspect of the mind transformed into the non-conceptual wisdom directly realizing emptiness? Okay, how does it go from just being the clear light mind of a certain being to being that, that wisdom realizing emptiness? By means of learning, reflecting, and meditating on the Dharma. There it is. He didn't say by praying, yeah, by doing, uh, you know, by doing prayer flags, by, you know, all this other stuff, you know. It's by learning, reflecting, and meditating on the Dharma. Yeah. The wisdom is generated in dependence on or in relation to the clear light mind. Giving the cause the name of the result is reminiscent of Nagarjuna's discussion of the three kayas or the three Buddha bodies in the ordinary state on the path and at the resultant state. Okay, so he talks about the three Buddha kayas, you know, on the ordinary state, on the path, and on the resultant state. But they're, you know, at the first, the first two, the ordinary level and on the path, they aren't the, uh, that wisdom. Yeah, on the path they're getting there. The expression three kayas in an ordinary state does not mean that the three resultant kayas are already present in us in our ordinary state. Okay. Rather, in the ordinary state, we possess the basis upon which we can actualize the three kayas. This basis is given the name of the result. Okay. Similar ways of speaking are found in other scriptures. In uh, Treasury of the Dharmadhatu, Longchenpa, a great uh, Nyingma Lama, says that what is primordially awakened becomes reawakened. Huh? 
is primordially awakened and it has to be reawakened? What? If it has to be reawakened, then it wasn't primordially, you know, awakened. This is the thing, you know, how you get a lot of misunderstandings between the traditions. Because what a word means in one tradition is does not the meaning in the other traditions. <laughs> but if you think it is, then you look at that other, you know, what are they talking about? They're not talking nonsense. Okay. So some people take such passages literally thinking that we are already Buddhas. Okay. If that is the case, then we are very strange and disgraceful Buddhas. Longchenpa's statement echoes the notion of natural nirvana found in the Majjhimaka texts. Natural nirvana, remember, refers to the mind's emptiness of inherent existence. Yeah, this ultimate nature of the mind is pure and clear light. The defilements have not penetrated into it. Because this nature is naturally untainted, it is possible to remove the defilements that obscure it. Yeah, if the defilements were part of the nature of the mind, we could not eliminate them. Okay. While natural nirvana is not the nirvana of liberated beings, although the emptiness that is natural nirvana and the emptiness that is the nirvana of liberating beings, when perceived directly by a consciousness, you can't differentiate them, but they are not the same nirvana because the basis of those emptinesses are different. Okay, so while the natural nirvana is not the nirvana of liberated beings, it serves as the basis upon which actual nirvana can be attained. This is similar to the meaning of Longchenpa's statement that what is primordially awakened becomes reawakened. So it's similar to it. The, the natural nirvana, it's not the, the nirvana of liberated beings. Okay, so maybe that you say it's primordially awakened, but it serves as the basis upon which actual nirvana can be attained because you have to see that emptiness to get to natural nirvana so it's getting reawakened. However, they explain it. That's how I'm taking it. Nagarjuna's statement that the wisdom exists in the afflictions is made from the sutra point of view where wisdom refers to the continuity of the mental consciousness. Okay? So the continuity of the mental consciousness is being called... Um, yeah, it's being called wisdom. Yeah, it's not wisdom. It could be wisdom, but it's being called wisdom because that's the result of using that consciousness and purifying it. It's going to wind up to be wisdom. According to Dzogchen and Mahamudra, the wisdom that is present in the afflictions is much subtler and refers to the innate 
clear light mind. Now remember, the innate clear light mind is not wisdom, but it's being called the wisdom, so then you can talk about the wisdom that is present in the afflictions because the innate clear light mind is that continuity of kind mind that at that moment the afflictions are, are manifest on that basis. So the Dzogchen and Mahamudra people say that this wisdom is a non-composite phenomena. So they're saying it's permanent. Hmm. Okay. Dodrup Chen Jigbe Tenpe Nima, the third Dodrup Rinpoche, explains that non-composite in this context does not have the usual meaning of permanent and unconditioned, like I thought it did when I started reading that sentence. They say the wisdom is a non-composite phenomena. So it's a perfect example. If you take the usual meaning of non-composite, which is permanent, you think that that's what he's talking about. And he's saying that this mind is permanent, you know, that wisdom is permanent. Okay, so that's not what he's doing. Rather, wisdom is said to be non-composite, yeah, which here doesn't mean permanent, because it has existed beginninglessly and is not newly created by causes and conditions. So it's in, do you, do you get why it's being said to be non-composite? It's existed beginninglessly. It's not some new phenomenon that didn't exist before. So it's something that's eternal. So on that basis, it's being called non-composite. Because it's... Wisdom is being... What? I can't hear. That which is not the wisdom that we think of as wisdom yeah. is non-composite in that which is not usually what we think of non-composite. That's what we're saying here. I don't understand what you're saying. Okay. Here, the, the third Dudrup Chen Rinpoche explains that non-composite in this context does not have its usual meaning of permanent and unconditioned. Yeah. Rather, wisdom is said to be non-composite because it has existed beginninglessly and it is not newly created by causes and conditions. Okay. Of course, that wisdom is impermanent. Right, but it's not, but what I'm saying is it's not even wisdom. Yeah. It's the clear light. Yeah, it's the clear light mind. Right, so it's, so it's double confusing. Right, because, but ex, earlier he explained that his wisdom here refers to the clear light mind. That was in one of the previous paragraphs we read. So we have to remember that. Yeah. In the same way, the sublime continuum refers to the Buddha's activities as permanent because they have existed beginninglessly and will ex exist eternally. But they aren't permanent. Okay. So here, permanent is going back to our usual English meaning of permanent, which means eternal. Okay. Here, permanent means eternal and unending. It doesn't mean 
unchanging or unconditioned. Okay. So this is how a lot of uh, misconceptions arise between traditions. Gyalza Dharma Rinchen has another view. He says that the term wisdom in this statement is not to be understood literally. Yeah, we, we get that. Rather, uh, it refers to the emptiness of the mind, which is non-composite, permanent, and always present. Okay, so before wisdom was the name of the result getting given to the cause, now wisdom is referring to the emptiness of the mind, which is what that what, what wisdom actually realizes. Okay. So I believe the Dzogchen and Mahamudra interpretations are more applicable when trying to understand the presentation in the sublime continuum. There is not much difference between the seventh Dalai Lama's view of Buddha nature and that of Dzogchen and Mahamudra. However, Dzogchen and Mahamudra speak from the viewpoint of highest yoga tantra and thus they identify the innate, ever-present, clear-light mind as the Buddha nature, whereas the seventh Dalai Lama speaks from the sutra viewpoint that points to Tantra. Okay, but it's coming to the basically the same. Okay, we'll stop for today. Okay. You'll see through, you know, throughout the Library of Wisdom and Compassion, His Holiness, um, you know, he brings in material from other traditions, and especially because he himself practices Dzogchen, yeah, then he'll bring that in, and uh, especially in Volume 10, really showing how uh, the Dzogchen viewpoint and the Sakya view, viewpoint, you know, of the undifferentiation of, of samsara and nirvana and you know, all, and the, the galu thing of the wisdom, bliss and emptiness, how all these things actually come to the same point. They're not exactly the same, but they come to the same point. And he, uh, his holiness is, he really talks about that a lot, I think, because, uh, it's the, you know, when people don't understand properly, then it's the basis for a lot of sectarianism, you know, and then infighting and, and so on. Okay? So we have to go back and think about this, huh? <laughs> yeah. These, there are, sec there are sections where you have to go over and really study them again and again and again. Does this come back up in volume 10? Uh, about Buddha nature? Not so much, yeah. But about Dzogchen Mahamudra, yeah. It's in volume 10. Do you know, or because I couldn't find the Sanskrit or the Tibetan for that composite... Composite nature body? Yeah. Or, yeah, composite nature body. I don't know. I don't know it. You, you could try uh, looking in, in the Uma dictionary. 
maybe it's in there or in the um, the Rigpa the Rigpa wiki thing. Maybe it's there. If you come up with it, let us know. Okay. So all those fundamental minds of clear light floating out there. <laughs> Appreciate yourselves. Yeah. <laughs> Appreciate that you have that. You're not a rock. You know, you find some people, you know, that talk about the rocks getting and having Buddha nature. When they do that, they're just, they just mean the rocks are empty of inherent existence. They, they, rocks that clearly don't have consciousness, they're not going to become the Buddha. Yeah. At least by what I've learned. I don't know about the people who say that rocks have Buddha nature, what they really think. But that's what I think they think. Yeah. Because they are Buddha, they are Buddhists after all. Okay.